Welcome to Greensburg Baptist Church. We welcome our church family and also our visiting friends. Thank you for coming to worship with us. To find out more about Greensburg Baptist Church, our upcoming events, and other church activities, visit our website anytime at greensburgbaptist.com. This past Tuesday, as Emma and the boys and I journeyed back home, um, we saw an amazing sight in the sky, and it was a storm that was uh, unbelievable lightning. I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was such a distance away that you didn't hear the thunder, and we all just marveled at all of this beautifulness that was lighting up the sky, and it was just, it was awesome, and and yet also we've all been at times probably where you've been really close to the storm, and when you're in the midst of being really close where that lightning is hitting, that thunder is clapping, it's right there on you, or maybe you're outside and you're exposed, and you feel the terror of that moment. Um, we've all seen that experience. We've been on both sides where it appears glorious at a distance, but man, when it is on you, there is something terrifying about it. And I think that captures well what's being communicated to us from the prophet Isaiah as we come to Isaiah 13 and 14 as we continue walking through this, uh, this book of the prophet. And so I've entitled today's message, The Terrible and Glorious Day of the Lord. It's interesting, right, that we would use terrible and glorious to describe the same event because they are indeed antonyms. They seem in opposition to one another. They seem contrasting terms. How could you use two different contrasting terms to define the same event? And yet, that is what we're going to see. That the day of the Lord, this coming day of judgment, is terrifying for those who are opposed to Christ and the cross. And yet for us who have come and found rescue in the one who looked beyond our fault and yet saw our need, there's something glorious about this day of the Lord that is coming. So let us look to it, beginning in Isaiah chapter 13. As we open the text, we're going to hear that a holy war is coming and all the armies of the world are invited. A holy war is coming and all the armies of the Lord are invited. It says it's an oracle. Literally, that's a prophetic message concerning Babylon. And there's confusion of why would he begin with Babylon? We've heard literally nothing of them. Assyria is the threat in that day and time. At that moment, Assyria is the one who is waiting to come in. They're looking toward Israel and they're going to be stepping on Judah and Jerusalem's doorstep soon. So why speak to Babylon? Yet Babylon is here nonetheless because it will become this great world power. And you've seen maybe if you've looked much in the book of Revelation, that Babylon is used to represent the world and the systems and the power and everything that is opposed to God. And so Babylon, although a specific place, also acts as an umbrella to the nations that are opposed to God. He says it's this oracle, this prophetic message concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw on a bare hill raise a signal. Why? Because God wants everyone to see it. A, crowd, a cry aloud to them, wave the hands for them to enter the gates of the nobles. And the text continues further by saying, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones, which is confusing nonetheless that God calls them consecrated ones, literally ones that are set apart. One that when in New Testament terminology, we might say sanctified, which is a term used of those that are in Christ. They're set apart. And yet God says, these are my consecrated ones. I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger. So again, you're seeing this my of God. He's my mighty men, my consecrated ones. This is my anger. And then we hear this statement that we heard a few weeks ago. These are actually 
my, and he says, proudly exalting ones. The nations are all too willing to come and do God's work. Why? Because of their great pride. They can't wait to flex the muscle. Sun's out, gun's out, right? It's kind of a terminology we use maybe today's time. That's what's happening here. The sun has come out. The season is for battle. And everybody's ready to flex. And the nations are screaming, flying toward this battle. Look what it says. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. This seemingly surrounding Jerusalem, these mountains, they're hearing all these people gather for battle. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms. Look at that. Look what it says there. We're hearing about kingdoms of nations gathering together. That terminology, gathering together, is interesting. Hold that there. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, literally from the four corners, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. What's challenging about this text is exactly what is Isaiah speaking of. And of that, we're not exactly sure because several things happen. In 689 B.C., the Assyrians will conquer the Babylonians. And then later, 539 B.C., Cyrus will rise up with the Persians, the Medes, the Medeal Persian Empire will rise up and conquer Babylon. But yet there seems to be something of this battle and this description that is greater than anything that we will have seen yet in history. And I think it points forward and reminds us of what is coming in this great battle, this Armageddon that's revealed in the book of Revelation. Again, listen to what the words of Revelation as John writes in this vision, beginning in verse 7 of Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Again, you're hearing similar terminology. Gog and Magog to what? To gather them for battle, right? That's just what we've seen there with Isaiah, right? He's gathering these nations together. Well, there it is. They're gathering them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I think it's likely that Isaiah is writing about, indeed, the end times. Yes, he's speaking to the present day of what's going to happen to Babylon, but there's something greater. There is a war to end all war, so to speak, that is coming at the end of time. And Isaiah is beginning to speak to us about this great holy war that's going to come upon the face of the earth as God gathers all the nations for war. It's going to strike terror. Look what the response is to the people. Well, look what it says. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty will come. It's going to begin to strike terror in the hearts of the people, right? They're going to literally wail. That is like a, a howl. I don't know if you've ever been in people in the midst of a crisis moment, but you may have heard people literally, they're almost as if they're howling. There's just this, this something that comes out of the soul, a brokenness of the news that they've just heard of, of the things that they can't believe are true. And there's a howl that comes out and he says, wail. And that's the call for them to cry. Why? Because he says, look what he says there. He'll tell you why. For. For. And then this, this imagery that's very, very important, this wording. The day of the Lord is what? It's near. He says, listen, I want you to know the day of the Lord is going to come and it's going to strike terror in the people. What's challenging maybe a little bit about this day of the Lord is, is, 
is that one defining moment, like a specific moment, like it's going to boom happen instantaneously? Or does this look kind of maybe big picture? And I think it's likely that he's looking big picture, that this day of the Lord is, is a time in which there's going to be an ongoing judgment. The world is going to experience ongoing judgment so much that Revelation says that literally people will run to the rocks and try to hide in the caves. They will try any way they can to get away from this judgment. Listen to how Jesus defines the end of the days in Matthew 24, beginning verse 21. For then, he says, there will be great tribulation. So again, we're speaking of this, this end time that is coming. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those, look what he says here. I think this is significant. Those what? Days. Not day, but days had not been cut short. No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, of those who are in Christ, those days will be cut short. So it's likely, again, from the context and what's happening here, that this is day of the Lord speaks of a period of time of great judgment that's going to come upon the earth. And again, we're going to hear the response of the people. Look what it says there in verse 7 of Isaiah 13 as we return back. Therefore... Therefore, in response to the day of the Lord, this coming destruction, look what it says. All hands will be feeble and every human heart will what? It's going to melt. There's going to be such terror upon the hearts and lives of everyone when this day of the Lord comes. That's why it's a terrible thing. The terrifying day of the Lord. The hearts of all people are going to be melting in response to what is coming here. Literally says they're going to be dismayed and further there. But I know time's pressing, so I I will move forward. A couple of things that I want to maybe jump out from the text at us is this. First, why? Why is the day of judgment coming? And I think there's two reasons that Isaiah gives. One here and then he's going to give another as the chapter 14 begins. And then maybe a second question. How will we know it's the great day of the Lord? How might we know that this great judgment has finally come, right? And you can kind of see the blood moons there. We've been dealing with some of that in our culture. And people are wondering, what do these things signify? Why? Why? Because we've heard of different prophets who said that there's going to come. The moon will be turned to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord, the prophet Joel tells us. And so we're asking, what are these signs that we might see? So a couple of things. Look what it says. Behold, he says in verse 9 of Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger. Why? Look what he says there. You want to know why the day of the Lord's coming? Two. A couple of things. One, to make the land a desolation. The earth itself has come under the curse because of sin. In fact, Paul will tell the church in the church at Rome, he says literally, the creation is crying out for redemption. But back in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, cursed was the ground, right? From painful toil, you will labor of it all the days of your life. Even the land, the the, the earth in which we live is under the curse. You and I think it's beautiful here now. We think it's great, some things that we see here now. Brothers and sisters, we ain't seen nothing yet. No, no, right? I mean, we have not seen anything yet. Look what he says there. Not only to make a land the desolation, here's something further that's behind. Why is the land a desolation? This explains to us further. Look what it says. Two. Destroy who? Sinners. It's to destroy sinners from it. Further, look what he says here in verse 11. I will punish the world. Why is he going to punish the world, right? You're going to see four, four, a couple things here. It's going to tell us why. So look at these. For it's evil. For their iniquity, I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. 
I'll lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So evil, iniquity, arrogant pride, ruthless. He says, listen, I want you to know this day is coming. Why? Because God will judge all sin. This is when the world encounters a holy God and our sin will not stand. The earth is going to come face to face with its maker and he's going to shake the earth. Saying, you have defied me and my holiness and my godliness. And beloved, I want you to know that you too will come face to face with the maker of heaven and earth. And there is but one rescue. There is but one thing that will free you on that day. There is but one hope that day. And it is to run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because on the cross, the sinless son of God died for your sin. That you could stand before a holy God and be accepted. Not because of who you are, but because of who He is and your faith is in Him. Hallelujah. Is that not glorious in the midst of this terrifying, terrible day that is coming upon the earth? It is the hope of sinners. And yet the world is going to experience this great judgment. So beloved, if you stand here in your sin, refusing the only offer of salvation, I want you to know that this ought to terrify your soul. So how will we know it's the day of the Lord? Well, Isaiah gives us a couple clues. Look with me if you would. Again, he's been talking about the day of the Lord. So a couple things here. Look what he says. Verse 10. Again, we have another four, right? So he's grounded it, saying, here's how you're going to recognize it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I have some boys that love a nightlight at night. And if that nightlight goes out or if a brother makes a bad decision and he goes over and pulls the nightlight out from the wall where they're all three in there together, it's chaos, right? That night, right? And they start screaming and all these things happen. And and so listen, there's something crazy. God's going to literally, he's going to throw, he's going to throw a dark out. Boom. Says, listen, I want you to know further verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. A lot of things are happening here. I want to throw three things at you. One, I believe it's literal. Why? Because back in Egypt, when the exodus came and the plagues came, one of the things that happened was literally darkness came over the land. So I believe there's literal things that are going to happen in the sky. There's going to be a literal shaking. There's going to be literal things changing with the sun, the moon, the stars happening. But I also think there's something figurative. Why? Because darkness is always in opposition to the true light. There's there's something happening. There's a judgment that's coming because people have desired darkness. God is giving them what they've ultimately desired. Thirdly is this. I think it's a spiritual. Why? Because throughout the Canaanite religion, which you remember, the people have come into the land of Canaan. And, and we see it, we, we know it, right? We see it in different religions even now. There was much worship of the sun, the moon, the stars. People worship those things. And God's going to say, you know what? I am so much greater and glorious than all of these. If you walk through Exodus and see the plagues, what you see behind many of these things is, is that the Egyptians were worshiping so many of those things. And God was saying, I'm greater than that. I'm greater than that. I'm greater than that. I'm greater than that. So it is here again. So again, I think these are some things that clue us in as we look and see literal, figurative, and spiritual things that are happening. Well, maybe a further question is, well, maybe what we look at is what this means for the kingdoms of the world. And then the second part again, why is the day of judgment coming, part two. So again, what does this mean for the kingdoms of the world? And Babylon, verse 19 of Isaiah 13 says, The glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like what? 
We'll be like what? Come on now. Sodom and Gomorrah. When God overthrew them. And then he says this further. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. And he, he says a lot of other stuff here. I think some things are happening here. Um, they're challenging nonetheless um, to, to interpret exactly what this means. Is this something that happened in Isaiah's time that's already found fulfillment? Or is this something yet future? I think, again, it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. It has to point to something fewer, even th- or future. Even though something may have, again, brought some type of fulfillment in that day and time, we're looking forward to even something greater, something future, when God will judge and bring this upon the world and none will escape. And so, again, let's ask maybe some further questions. Why, again, is this day of the judgment coming? Well, I think this is, this is important here. Look with me again, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 14. He starts it with a 4, right? He says, here's further, guys, why this time is close at hand. Its day will not be prolonged. Verse 1 of Isaiah 14, 4. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again, again, again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. So I think there's first and foremost, God is reminding us in the midst of this, why is this judgment coming? It's telling us God has not forsaken His people. And there's going to be judgment that's going to come upon the earth, but God is saying in the midst of that, I want you to know that I've not given up on my people. Some of you need to hear that today. You need to gather in almost as if you were huddling around the huddle with God and let Him remind you He's not given up on you. Because it sure appears that way. If you read this text, you think, man, Israel's done. God's just... He says, not so. In fact, my judgment works to show my great mercy and grace. I've not given up on them. Secondly, look what else it says here. And he says, look further with me, verse 1. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. He's saying that Gentiles will come in and ultimately be a part of the people of God. This is hope for us. This is part of your story that one day by God's grace and mercy, sojourners will come in and join them. Gentiles will come in and be a part of the people of God. And thirdly, look at this, just a reversal and rest. Verse two and three it says the people will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors. And rule over those who oppress them. It's a reversal of everything that's happened. All the oppression that's come upon them. When the Lord has given you what? When the Lord has given you what? From your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. Some of you need to hear that because you're looking everywhere else for rest. It's the Lord alone that can give you rest. From the pain, the turmoil, the hard service, everything you're experiencing. There is but one rest Jesus Christ in Matthew 11, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened or heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Rest in the fact that you not have to work for your salvation. He has already earned it for you. Believe, trust in the name of Christ. There is eternal rest there. And now the text comes to something maybe even you think has been difficult. We have some even greater difficulty. And and it's this. As Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 4, is going to pick up in just a moment, um, we're going to hear the victory cry of the people of God. They've heard all this good news, that they've not been forgotten, that God's going to ultimately deliver them. 
And then we have this depiction this of the king of Babylon being judged. And specifically in verses 12 and 14, there's question of, is this also speaking of Satan's judgment? Right? Is there an allusion to Satan? I think there's a possible allusion to him. So let's look at the text again. It's very interesting. This is a rich text. Um, you may have heard it at different points. So let's take just a few moments, look at it for an example of who this is speaking about. So, again, the victory cry and the possible allusion to the fall of Satan here in Isaiah 14. Look at it says, verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. It appears the king of Babylon is a literal physical king, okay? It says how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury. Let's jump forward. Verse 9, it says, Sheol beneath, right? So Sheol speaks of the grave, of the place of the dead. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth. So we have leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. So it appears that the dead there in Sheol, right? The place of the dead are recognizing that another literal physical person, a king has come in into death and they are rising to meet him. They are recognizing who he is. So again, I think there's a point that it speaks of a literal physical person. They'll say to them, you two have become as weak as we are, and you have become like us. But then we have this question of, how does this speak of maybe Satan? Pick up with me, Wood, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who, you who laid the nations low. I'd be interested, is anybody here packing a King James Version? Yeah. So right there, brother, you're probably going to see a different word. You don't see day star. What's it say? Does anybody recognize what it says? Lucifer. And this creates part of the confusion, I think. And I would be interested. I think that the King James has an asterisk there with a footnote that probably says something like morning star. Does anybody see that? Son of the morning is a footnote that's at the bottom. Awesome. Thank you, brother. And so this is part of the question, right? Interpreters are seeing this. Um, what's actually to be made of this, right? Of What's this term pointing to? What's it imply? And most translations say sun of the morning, day star, something like that in their translation. But the word Lucifer in the King James has created a lot of rise to maybe this speaks literally of him. Again, I think it speaks of a, a, a physical king, a literal king. But there is, an, a, I think, a, a likely allusion to Satan. So let's walk through and just maybe look at this a little bit because it's an interesting text. How you are fallen from heaven. Well, the fact that this king falls from heaven is part of it, right? If you come with Jesus when he the disciples return to him and they share all the things that they've been doing about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like what? Like lightning. In Revelation chapter 12, when you hear the text says that that ancient serpent, who is the devil, Lucifer, right? He's been hurled down to the earth. And so, again, we hear this falling from heaven, this Odestar. If you're reading the King James, you're going to see the word Lucifer. And so there's a lot of question about, does this depict the fall of Satan from heaven? Look at it says further. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the, what? Most high. Again, this fallen from heaven, this day star that's ascending to heaven. He's above. He wants to set his throne where God is. 
Again, we have lots of question about who is this person? Is this a physical king that could ever assume that? But we, we know, right, that some kings in the ancient times, some Egyptians were calling themselves the God, right? They were recognizing that was how they wanted to be recognized. So this maybe is not too far pressing for it to be a physical, literal king of Babylon. But we have to say behind it, man, whether it's an actual allusion to Satan or not, it's definitely got his fingerprints. Listen to this. I will. I will. I will. I will. Continually throughout. I thought there was another one. Yeah, there's another one right there. I will. There's this thought of Satan and this pride that just comes up of who he is and how great he is and how mighty he is. And if you're not careful, you will follow the influence of the prince of the power of the air who is Satan. If we are not guarded, beloved, if you're not guarded in your job, in your vocation, in your educational training, if you and I are not guarded in our finances and so many things, if we're not careful, we begin to think it's I will, I will, I will, I will. And that sure seems to be the anthem of the satanic course. And the king of Babylon is throwing it out there, declaring about who he is. Look what happens here. It's interesting. Verse 15. But you, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. John Oswald, he is a distinguished scholar just up the road at Asbury Seminary there in Wilmore, Kentucky. He says this about this verse, Death mocks every person's claim to be God. Death mocks every person's claim to be God. And so it is even with this great ruler of Babylon. In light of this, I think maybe three specific things, takeaways. I know time's come, so I'm going to be, be brief. But I want three things, three practical applications of as we look at the biblical text, as we hear oracles and prophecies and things that are coming about, how might we respond to them, right? Because we've got a lot coming in the, in the future chapters here in this section of Isaiah. So again, three specific applications in response to the terrible and glorious day of the Lord. Number one is this, we should rejoice. Rejoice not only because of what we heard there in verses 1 through 3 about that God has not given up on his people and he's going to return them to their land and the Gentiles will be gathered. Look what happens here as the, as the chapter comes to a close. Verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I purpose, so shall it stand. Further look at me. Verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? We ought to rejoice that our God is ultimately in control. Then despite what you see in the news, despite what your, your headlines may say in your family or your life, despite what the next prognosis may mean or the phone call or the results of that test or that exam or if you will make it on that team or receive that job or you've got all these questions wondering who's in control, God says, beloved people of God, rejoice. Because your God is ultimately in control. Secondly is this. I think it should transform the way we react. Right? I mean, we've got to ask some questions about these moments in life when the people of Israel experience things that we also experience. When it seems that our enemies are triumphing over us. When it seems that evil and wickedness is ruling the day, we've got to start asking, are these things fair? And listen, beloved, I'm not saying that we should be passive people. We are to be a voice for the voiceless. We are not to stand passively by when those are being mistreated in our culture and world because of whatever it is, 
social conditions, economics, the color of their skin, whatever it may be, we ought to respond. But I want to encourage you about the way we are to react in light of this text and truth. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, beginning verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, right? Don't repay evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And we have to ask the question at this moment, why? That's what he says. But leave it to what? The wrath of God. Why would we ever leave that to the wrath of God? Why would we not get even with our spouse, with our friend, with the jerk at work? Why would we not get even with the person that ticks you off in traffic? Why would we not avenge ourselves? Listen to what he says. Leave it to the wrath of God. Why would we trust the wrath of God? Look what he says. Four. For it is written, what? Vengeance is mine. I will what? I'll repay. Do you know that every wrong that's ever been done to you will be repaid? In one of two ways. In one way, that person may experience the judgment of God as they stand before him and pay the penalty for their sin. Or the wrong that's been done to you, and hallelujah, the wrong that we've done to been others, has been covered in the cross. It's been paid for. That wrong to you has not been overlooked. It's not that slight that was done to you or your family or children. It's not been overlooked by God. Either He will bring judgment on the last day or Christ paid the penalty for it on the cross. So you don't have to get even because God is the ultimate and righteous judge. This text reminds us how we should react. Thirdly, as we close, it also conform, transforms the way we respond, the way we think about prophecy. Listen to Peter. He talks about prophecy and then he says this should respond. To transform the way we respond. Look at it. Uh, beginning in verse 10 of Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord. Whoa, same language. Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come, he says, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter says that when we hear prophecy, it should transform something about us. Listen to what he says. It should transform our lives in holiness and godliness. He said this should transform the way you live further. Okay. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Here again, he says, this is what you are to be. Be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace with God and one another. So listen, I want to caution you when you get caught up in chasing blood moons and the end times and exactly when this will be. And is is that of Satan? And and does this speak of Babylon here? or What's it doing? Those are interesting discussions. But if all it is is a discussion, Peter says you've missed a very important part of it. When you see these things, it should transform your life to live a holy and godly life. It should transform the way we respond, the way we react, and the fact that we rejoice because of what God will bring. Man, it's a great hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Christ and the hope and the victory that he brings. I pray today as we look at your word in the coming weeks, if the Lord wills that we should continue here, that God, we will hear of more of this. And Father, I pray that instead of just trying to figure everything out, yes, Lord, we want to look and understand. Absolutely. But Lord, I pray that you would use it also to conform our lives to the image of your son. Father, thank you that the ultimate judgment that will come will stand before you 
and give an account. And thank you that the only hope on that day is your son, Jesus. Hallelujah, that we as sinners can be accepted by you because of your son's death in our place. Father, may you use that in our lives to move us to joy and worship, but also to go and share and to live holy and godly lives. I pray it for the glory of our name, Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. We invite you to stand and, and worship with us this morning, this, this closing song. But also want to let you know that if you want to talk, pray about Christ, uh, discussing the things of God, Brother Todd and myself will be here. We'd love to pray, talk with you. Others I want to compel you to respond to the gospel. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.